This is the first time publicly that this part of the story is being shared. Truce is together for responsible use and cannabis education. The whole point in Truce for me was to shed your labels. Put aside that you're a Republican or a Democrat or a Libertarian. You are just a patient. You're a human being who suffers. And cancer doesn't care what label you wear. The story that I was kind of told growing up is just drugs are bad and only bad people use drugs and criminals use drugs. And I was part of the Just Say No campaign. I think it's funny that everybody thinks it's the gateway drug, but it actually, <laughs> the <gateway out. laughs> it was the gateway out for me. It was the thing that opened up the door to a different life. I knew that I had to convey to them that inhalation is vital. Like if I have a pain attack come on in my face, I don't want to take an oil that's going to take an hour and a half to kick in. I want to take a hit off of my joint and it will take five seconds for me to get relief. Now I, I had a problem with somebody's religious prejudice interfering with my ability to medicate. I don't know if I believe in a God. Yeah. I definitely believe that there is a energy that we all share. When suffering is the human condition, let compassion be the cure. And when there is important work that needs to be done, I definitely believe the universe works in a way that helps those energies come together to create that change. I was registering people who had never voted and they were in their 40s and 50s. Like what this this particular issue did was awaken people. On a couple of occasions, I actually got um, these elderly patients stoned for the very first time in their life. <laughs> you are in a position of strength. Do not negotiate. Do not negotiate with the church at all. Marty Stevens, okay. he is the church lobbyist. And the way he presented to me, if I'm talking to him, I'm talking to the brethren. That's how he presented it to me. And then he used a term that I was just shocked at. He says, because war is coming. I was like, war is coming? What? I got an email from him the next morning. And in the email, he indicated there's at least five to $10 million that's going to be spent to try to stop us. He spells this out in an email. The church has just threatened to spend five to $10 million and in writing, have said that they're going to call on the legislative body for a special session, go to the Chamber of Commerce, the governor's office. Like, it, they list everybody they're going to have involved. And I just, I remember sitting there thinking, I have this very prominent faith talking about heavy political engagement here. As soon as those lobbyists read it, they were like, oh, oh, he screwed up. He should not have written this. <laughs> You should not have put this in writing. This is Infants on Thrones. The philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core. the good in everything look for the people who will set your soul free it always seems impossible until it's done look for the good in everyone all right let's do it okay so christine 
We are back for part two. And if I remember correctly, where we left off last time, you had just walked up to the state house. You you had discovered cannabis. Um, and I, you know, and, and I remember when you when you talked to me on the phone before we started recording anything, you said, I, I want to be really careful, Glenn, that you know that I'm not claiming that cannabis cured me. It didn't heal me, but it was a pain management tool and that it was able to get you out of your bed, get you to driving, get you back engaging in the world that excited you so much that you're like, I, I got to do something about this. I got to change Utah. I, I said when I moved out here from Florida, I was going to change Utah. Damn it. I'm going to go and change it. <laughs> so we're going we're to talk yeah. about today <laughs> how you did. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was a, a very strange foretelling that I, I said to that boyfriend. Yeah. yeah. Um, Even I before did, you had premonitions. That you <laughs> I know. Even before that, I, I had some weird mission of sorts. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think I, the last time we talked, um, I had taken you guys up to the Capitol. Um, I had met a female legislator. She encouraged me to get involved. Um, and I spent the next 45 days up there during that session. And we just sort of... Um, as a citizen lobbyist, you sort of stand outside these uh, the white, the uh, House doors or the Senate gallery doors, and you you hope to catch a legislator. You send in notes, and you hope to bring them out so that you can share your concerns or or wants or desires for a bill. And um, that particular year, we were running a CBD only bill, and so I was up there on the hill helping this lady with her advocacy stuff, but wanting to make sure that I educated lawmakers about cannabis and started sharing my story with people. That was the biggest thing is I just wanted to share my experience with and, cannabis. And what, what year was this, Christine? Um, this was in 2014 okay. that I made it up to Capitol Hill. Um, I had been there earlier in the, you know, the year before just watching stuff, but never in a, in a, um, active role of trying to push an issue. And did I remember so, right? It was, it was 2011 when you tried cannabis and it was, correct. you know, over six months or so from then that, that you had right. your. Yep. Right. Um, I had my, I had my experience and um, started driving. Um, at that point I had even hired a trainer to help me with my, with my physical body because, you know, bedridden and housebound for so many years, you just, you have really bad body mechanics, you know? Um, I was, you know, kind of in a uh, fetal position most of that time, just always in pain. And mm. so I knew that um, running around after legislators, I definitely needed help uh, with body strengthening. And so um, during that summer, I was, that's what I was doing. Um, I actually started attending night school, trying to get my mind thinking yeah. a little bit more and stuff. Um, and then headed into that session in 2014. So 2013 was a lot of body strengthening and training. And, um, and that fall was a lot of mind training, yeah. getting myself accustomed to writing papers again and, and just thinking, cause you know, yeah. for years you just go, you don't, you don't exercise the mind when all you're trying to do is live through the moment of, yeah. you know, pain attacks. So um, as I'm up there, I'm sharing with other lobbyists because everybody stands around waiting for their legislator to come out. So I'm standing around with other lobbyists and they're asking, you know, oh, who are you? Why are you here? And I share my story and I get, you know, a very strange reaction. 
one, people are floored to hear it. That they're, they're just like, that is an amazing story. And that will never happen here in Utah. <laughs> like they, they just dismissed the thought of me trying to push for legislation. They just thought it was, you know, lots of people, you know, and I, I would ask the other lobbyists, you know, have you seen other people over the years who've come up here trying really to, to get a name out of people? Like maybe I could find more allies, more people to join me. Cause at this point in time, um, all I had was a Facebook page. I had started getting involved in, in politics a little bit by, tw by 2011. Um, I was realizing cannabis was working for me. I started a Facebook page and, um, started dropping people in the, the group who had support of cannabis, who are, um, was a, who were patients who were politically involved. I just started acquiring people. Um, I would go into different Facebook groups and, you know, I would type up in the, in the corner, you can search word search different key words. Yeah. And so I would word search marijuana, cannabis, weed, all the typical slang terminology. And it would bring up conversations that were happening in those um, groups. Anybody that had, you know, an intelligent thought or comment or, or anything, I would private message them. I would share my story with them and ask them if they would be interested in joining a Facebook group working on trying to lobby for some legislation. Does that still and, work? Where like Facebook now where you could type that in and find It does actually. Really? You can. Wow. You I didn't know that. Can. It's 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 um I wasn't really tech savvy um because yeah. during those times that I was down and it was my son, my oldest son at the time, he was the one that taught me how to use Facebook to start socializing with people. I didn't know how to use a computer. Um, I went down in 1996 with a brain tumor and then was down for a decade and a half. So I wasn't part of Facebook. I wasn't part of like MySpace, um, the whole online AOL, all that stuff. You know, I, I just wasn't part of that world. So I didn't really know much about it. And wow. I learned computerish stuff through Facebook. Um, <laughs> that's, that's how my son, you know, kind of pointed me in that direction and that's so interesting almost like you got put in a time capsule for 16 years and then you came yeah. out and it's a totally different world from 1996 it, it that yes exactly it truly truly felt like that and and the weirder thing is for my poor family like you know my husband got his master's degree he like life for them was continuing you know yeah. they would go out into the world and it, you know the world was continuing and well, let's, let's, let's talk about that for a minute, because I remember sure. you said in, in 1996, you, you had broken up with this boyfriend, the one that you flipped off and you kind of watched yourself in the out-of-body experience flip him off, which I love that story. <laughs> Can't get that image out of my mind. <laughs> but then you had started dating someone else who you ultimately married. And yes. he was also involved there too. And so for this guy to, to really... I, I imagine take care of you during those oh, those years, the and, sixteen and we years, should, and we should give come. Yes, let's talk about my ex because he is an absolutely wonderful human being. Yeah, um, he was actually the guitarist in a band that I managed. Oh, okay. Um, so the the boyfriend that I told you that I flipped off was the lead. Lead singer. singer. Okay, so so these the were guitarist. like band rivals. So this is like a Fleetwood are, Mac story. No, <laughs> exactly. If Stevie Nicks were the band manager instead if of I, exactly, 
Um, but so he knew me before brain surgery. Mm-hmm. We were friends. We got along. He was like the responsible one out of the band. Like if, mm-hmm. if, if shit was going down, I was like, hey, he was the one that the kind of I would go to and we would problem solve, whether it be venue issues, bill, whatever. It was, it was usually him and I that were, were doing that. So after surgery, um, he was just there. He, he came up. Um, ironically, I had brain surgery on his birthday. So he actually came up with my ex to the hospital because, you know, we were friends. We were friends. We were all, we cared about each other. We did. And so, um, after surgery, he just, he stayed around. He just stayed around. And, um, apparently, when I was kind of in and out of coming out of the coma like state, um, I called, I asked his sister who was, who was there in the room visiting me one day about him. And she felt like that meant something. And so she really encouraged us to, to date and, and do that. It was a, it was a very sweet, um, a very sweet kind romance he was extremely attentive not just to me but to my children too and it was i just have a tremendous amount of respect for him yeah i do so when when you 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 mentioned last time that after you came out of that coma and had that near-death experience that there were moments of like premonition where you kind of knew things like Mm -hmm. did did you in, in what you said to his sister, did you say something like a premonition? Like, I know this is, we're going to be together. So was there anything like that? It was a little bit. Yeah. And, and then I think that's why she, she was um, encouraging of him to come up because wow. I was calling for him. Yeah. And um, I've had, uh, it's hard to talk about. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Um, he's, he was very much a, a gentle personality compared to the my my first husband. Yeah, and um, he took on a lot taking on a woman who had two children and health conditions. So um, it was it was a lot for these twenty somethings to take on, and he did, and we endured a lot of hardship. He got through his engineering degree. Um, up at the University of Utah. And those were some hard years. I, I remember many times I'd be in the emergency room and he'd be studying. <laughs> he'd be studying and um, we'd be in the ER for like hours, you know, and he'd be trying to read and prepare for a final the next day or a test or a paper that needed to be done. And we just had this very strange life of pain and solitude and just working. There wasn't a lot of joyous celebrations. Um, Birthday parties were quiet because it was uh, more times than not, I was down and we needed a quiet household. Um, Not to say that there weren't moments. There were some years that my health was doing well and the children could share with you some wonderful times that they had sporadically. Um, for me, it's frustrating because I remember far more downtime than I do yeah. uptime. And um, and and the two of you had two children together, right? We did. 
Um, we did actually, why, we did have two children together. Um, and my first son that we had, it, it, the pregnancies were difficult. They were, they were always challenging because I had to give up a lot of my pharmaceutical drugs mm. um, that, that were a little more dangerous, which meant that I had to mostly use opiates. Mm. Uh, oddly, some of the, the um, like seizure medications and, and other types of medications were far more harmful to the fetus than opiates. And so it was always this delicate balance while I was pregnant of trying to maintain and manage these migraines that were just so out of control and, and this tremendous amount of pain that I was always dealing with um, and not using too, too many opiates or, or too much medication. Yeah. So, you know, pregnancies were always difficult, um, but we got, you know, we got through the two pregnancies. The two boys are seven years apart. And, and that had a lot to do with um, just, you know, the physical. And I wasn't sure I even wanted to have children, but, you know, that's what happens when you are married and you don't use protection kiddos. Yeah. Pregnancy happens. Yeah. So, um, but I had, I had my boys and, you know, we just kind of tried to have some kind of normal life. You know, it was just like it. Anybody, any other family that has chronic illness and, and you make do, you know, you figure out how to make things work. And yeah. that's where Brian, and that's my ex, um, was an absolute hero in my eyes. There, there, it was a lot to, to live like a sick person and not be sick. You know, he, he had to, he lived a life of caregiving and um, I'm sure it, it had its moments of just real heartache and, and frustration, especially when I was going through diagnoses. Oh my heavens, that's the worst. Trying to hunt down what's going on with you and being referred to specialist after specialist and then just being mistreated. You know, you spend a lot of time in the medical uh, community chasing down help and you, you know, people start to question, you know, are you a drug seeker? What's going on? You have a lot of doctors, you're on a lot of meds. And it, it's hard because, you know, then Brian would have to deal with my emotional breakdown of why do they mistreat me? You know, is there something wrong with me? You know, all that um, anxiety and depression that comes with, you know, just gosh darn it, trying to find help. Yeah. Um, and so there's a, a lot of that where he you know, a person can only take hearing a loved one screaming and writhing in a room in the house for so many hours before they're like, okay, I know what's going to happen when we go to the emergency room. They'll give her a shot because I metabolize uh, opiates and pain meds just really quickly. By the time we got home, the shot would be wearing off. You know, we lived 30 minutes away from a hospital so by the time I got home, the pain meds would be wearing off and we'd be kind of back in the same position where, you know, I'm in pain and I'm not comfortable and I'm not sleeping and I'm throwing up in the bathroom. And it's, it's a very, um, can be a very depressing life yeah. year after year like that. So finding cannabis and getting relief, knowing that um, it, it could give me that that reprieve from those attacks you know like i said uh, um cure to me would be that i took cannabis and i i don't have any more pain and i don't have any more 
illness or condition. And that's why I told you, like, it's, it's very important that people understand when I talk about cannabis changing my life and saving my life, it didn't cure me, but it gave me a, a better quality of life that is yeah. so meaningful now that that's why I, I felt the need and compelled to help change policy in the state. So patients could do this and not worry about reprisal from their government. You know, it, it just, it just made sense to me. Um, so being up on the Hill and sharing my story about cannabis was extremely important. And I had the support of the family, um, Brian was very supportive. The kids were very supportive. And at the time, my youngest was uh, three, almost four years old. He was in preschool when I started advocating on the Hill. And um, he's 13 now, just for the record. Um, and it was, it was an interesting thing to go literally from being in bed, rolling up on the Hill and just chasing down legislators. Um, it was a very interesting experience learning from all these lobbyists, how the system worked, understanding a little bit more about the political play, who the power players were in my state, um, what role the LDS church played in my state in regards to things. Cause I heard a lot of like, Oh, the church won't allow that. And like I referenced in, in our previous conversation, you know, I move me moving to Utah, I really had no idea what it was like here. You know, I lived outside in the mission field, you know, outside of Utah. I didn't know what that, that meant. Um, you know, well, the church won't allow it because I wasn't following politics too much. Um, until, you know, just recently with this issue, I didn't know the heavy handed influence there was going on. I think I, I think I, assumed that there was I just didn't understand to 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 what degree there was and so while 2014 rolled around we saw the passing of um, a CBD bill it was the first CBD bill in the country and it happened here in Utah um, a senator by the name of Steve Urquhart was the the senate sponsor and uh, the house sponsor was Gage Frower Gage Frower happens to have the same exact brain tumor I did, mm. but he had complete removal of his. Um, so I remember finding out these little tidbits and, and a lot of lobbying is that finding out little stories and tidbits and, in going and talking to the legislators or whomever, whomever it may be. Um, I encouraged them to push for the bill to be a little broader they were preaching that CBD was the only medicinal part of the plant, and we just knew that to not be true. We had Marinol synthesized THC. We know that THC has value. And so I was very concerned about this misdirection and, and disinformation campaign they had started. Because honestly, in my discovery of cannabis, I, I grew to understand the drug war far more um, detailed and more intimately than I did as a child who was just a daughter of a narcotics officer. You yeah, know, t I, tell me, tell me the difference. Tell me the story that you grew up with um, as a daughter of a narcotics cop, Miami Vice mm -hmm. guy. Mm -hmm. And then what, what was the real story that you found out later? Um, the story that I was kind of told, uh, you know, growing up is just these Drugs are bad and only bad people use drugs and criminals use drugs. And I was part of the just say no campaign. Mm. Um, my dad never gave me an understanding of where they came from. 
they just like were here one day, you know, like they've always been a part of society. So I never understood like the origin of, of drugs. I just knew um, being a kid, listening to my dad's friends, you know, we have a lot of barbecues and, and get together pool parties, you know, baseball games kind of thing. And uh, just listening to the guys talk, just talk about this bus, that, that bus, that kind of thing. Um, the language that they use, the derogatory terminology that they use, referring to different people, scumbags, you know, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah. Um, it, they, were, they, they were nameless boogeymen, you know? And I, and I didn't understand, like, who are these bad people out there? Like, where do they come from? How does this happen? I never really truly understood it. You know, I had this negative connotation about anybody who used drugs and even cannabis, especially like marijuana was this really bad thing, was really bad thing. And um, so I, I had this very, very naive and sheltered view on what drugs actually were and only bad people used them. You, you weren't alone. Yeah. You were I, not I, alone. Right, right. And yeah. so many people believe that. So for me to venture down this road, and like I, I mentioned before, I'm not sure if it was on our very first phone call or our <laughs> last podcast at this yeah. point, um, but I have experimented with cannabis. It's not to say, and I don't want your audience again to think that like I woke up and like, boom, this thing, and, like I managed a ban. A joint got passed around at a party or two. Um, I, I did partake in those occasions. It got me high. It wasn't mitigating a, I wasn't using it to treat a migraine in the, yeah. you know, at the moment. And so um, in this context, everything sort of shifted. And in, in my learning about the drug war and learning about drug use, um, you start to hear certain terminology. And one of the terminologies that I, I came across was set and setting. Yeah. And I thought, oh, this is a very interesting sort of concept. In our partaking of pharmaceutical drugs, we have a set and setting. And if you think about it, you have a sterile environment with a physician who's wearing a lab coat. You go into the doctor's office, everything's clean, everything's sterile. You have a polite conversation. And then your doctor turns into a drug purser. He pulls out his script and he writes you some prescriptions, yeah. you know, to treat your health. But there is a set and setting there. So when you do go purchase your medication at the pharmacy. There's a set and setting there, clean, sterile environment. It's given to you in a, you know, a container that has your name. All of this is part of our culture. Um, brainwashing of sorts telling you, this is how medicine is supposed to be used. Yeah. And we really the, removed the, the word, the word that I, I learned um, as a folklore or as, when I was studying folklore is acculturation. Acculturation. Instead of brainwashing, which means I the like same thing without the negative baggage it's, around uh, it. Yes. We were being yes. acculturated. That's yeah. exactly. And that is far more kinder and appropriate because I don't think necessarily that it's always with malice intent, but yeah. there's definitely um, motives. Yeah. And consequences. You know? For sure. Un- un- unforeseen, maybe unexpected, unintended consequences of us versus theming. Yes. And, and we do have that a lot with, um, when you deal with authority, like, you know, situations. So I'm, as I'm navigating through this space, I'm learning a lot all at once. I'm learning how to use 
Facebook and a computer. I'm right. learning a lot about politics. Yeah. Um, I'm learning a lot about drugs and drug policy and the background of that. But even deeper, and people take this for granted, and I think it's really important people understand this. Those who have been removed from society due to illness, disease, or condition do have some emo- emotional stunting and, and that happens. You know, you, sure. you don't think about, you get exposed to relationships every day. You go to the grocery store, you, ha- you develop a relationship with your checker. Same checker, same line, you know, we're all routine. We're, we, we live in that. You go to work, you have coworkers, you develop relationships. You learn how to navigate human relations through this. So for a chronic pain patient or a chronic or patient who's suffering from illness, the most they get to interact with are their caregivers Mm. or their loved ones. And it makes for a very emotionally stunted growth for a person. So not only am I navigating all these different facets of trying to push some type of cannabis policy or awareness, I'm also trying to navigate relationships with people who I don't know and learning what levels of trust, what, you know, different, different facets of all of this are happening all at once. And it is emotionally exhausting. It is the amount of brain power needed to navigate all this data download all the time is exhausting. And I'm a brain injury patient. And so there's, there's a tremendous amount of, of everything that's going on. And somehow I'm able to manage this. And, and I don't doubt that it's because there is a higher um, presence guiding this. I think mm. I told you in our very first phone call is, um, I don't know if I believe in a God. Yeah. I definitely believe that there is a energy that we all share. And when there is important work that needs to be done, I definitely believe the universe works in a way that helps those energies come together to create that change. And I started feeling a little bit of that gravitational pull as I was meeting people and hunting people down and adding them to my Facebook page. um, I was having private conversations. People were asking if they could call me. I was developing and feeling this energy pull happening. And so I started to continue collecting patience and information and it grew like i said 2014 um by this point in time there were some some um lds mothers some mormon moms from provo who were pushing the cbd only law and um i met with them asked them if they would consider opening it up and they just were really focused on just cbd they just wanted to do that and kind of move on um i decided that wasn't enough And after the close of the 2014 session, which ended in March, I decided to continue on and I wanted to find um, somebody who could run a whole plant access bill. We started to do outreach in the community. We were going to festivals and doing tabling events, you know, selling t-shirts, getting people on email lists, that kind of thing. Just raising awareness that there was an organization willing to champion this issue. Um, I would have, I would have other patients with me at the booth. We would have cancer patients, MS patients, Parkinson's veterans. We had all types of different patients advocating, sharing their story, getting people on 
email list. We did this all through 2014 summer. And then by the end of the summer, I was told by um, another advocate and supporter who she, let's see, she worked on minimum sentencing, mandatory minimum sentencing. She was an advocate in that arena. She said she heard a rumor that there was a, a senator who was wanting to run a whole plant access bill on the Hill. And I, I wanted to meet the Senator. I had to share with him my story. I thought for, I really truly thought this is the moment. This is the schoolhouse rock moment where I go and I share with my legislator this problem. And then he takes this as the quarterback and runs it and boom, there's a law. Um, that's what I thought was going to happen. But when I sat down with this senator to share my story, he was very taken back and asked if I could please follow him to the next meeting he was going to. Because he only gave me 15 minutes to meet with him. You know, you know, these senators meet with all kinds of people all the time. Um, the next, I said, sure, I could come with him to the next meeting. The next meeting we rolled into was with some pretty powerful players here in Utah, politically speaking. Uh, there was a gentleman from the Sutherland Institute, which is a very conservative think tank, a lady from Eagle Forum, which is another very um, ultra-conservative uh, right-winged think tank, and then the, the Medical Association was there with their physician and their ED. And I came with another patient. Um, it was just me and another patient. She's a Crohn's patient. And we shared our stories with them. I brought um, literature material with some studies and data to back up what we were talking about. And those, those organizations, you know, kind of grumbled and gruffed and told, you know, Senator Madsen, look, we, we just don't like the smoking component. And they left the room. Except uh, the one lady with wait, the- Wait, wait, wait. Hang on. Can I interrupt? Sure. So, so you're, you're showing them the efficacy of this. Mm-hmm like naturally growing thing. And their response was that they didn't like the smoking of it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They didn't like the smoking of it. And so, um, and, and what Senator Madsen was trying to do is give these organizations he knew were going to give him problem about this yeah. particular piece of legislation, a heads up so that he could take their concerns into consideration. And um, so and for me, my, my pitch to Madsen is that the only, I've been smoking it. Like up to that point, I was smoking it out of a pipe. Like, like with you before we got on the air, I was smoking a joint. Like that's how I learned to consume this medication. And so when she's, when it, it was the lady from the UMA says, oh, we just, we don't like smoking. I knew right then and there what I was contending with. And, yeah. and I'm sure many of your listeners no, <laughs> we are dealing with a prejudice that is based around the, the doctrine of the word of wisdom for LDS members. So they don't like smoking. They don't like it. And so I knew right then, because um, I had been using that term smoking in there, because that's how I consumed it. I knew that I had to convey to them that inhalation is, is vital. Like if I have a pain attack come on in my face, I don't want to take an oil that's going to take an hour and a half to kick in. I want to take a hit off of my joint and it will take five seconds for me to get relief. Now I, I had a problem with somebody's religious prejudice interfering with my ability to medicate. 
but I bit my tongue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I let that lady leave the room. Senator Madsen turned to me and my colleague and said, I don't know how to run a dog and pony show. I don't know how to get a bill passed and I need you guys' help. And we, me and my friend said, we can help. We had no idea what we were doing, but we said, we can help. Yeah. <laughs> like, sure, we will help you no matter what. And we knew when we walked out of that office that the biggest thing we needed were patients' stories, more patients like us. And we needed more patients everywhere in the state, throughout the entire state. Every district and every county had to have a local hero calling their legislators, championing for access. And that's really what we started to do. My friend and I started, um, I started a nonprofit drug policy project of Utah. My hope was to tackle drug policy reform and cannabis being the very first issue. And um, so we went into that session of 2015 um, as drug policy project of Utah. We had probably I probably had seven or eight patients that um, I had found through Facebook and everything that I had come up. They did a small little press conference. We, we were advocating on the Hill. I was having them come up and meet with legislators. Other individuals started to hear news about this. Um, I did my first interview with Salt Lake Tribune and um, other patients saw this on the news. And so a few more people started trickling up to the Capitol And when they would get up there, they would try to talk to Senator Madsen. He would point them in my direction and say, go talk to Christine Stenquist. So I would capture these patients, take their information, teach them what was happening, where committee hearings are, how to lobby, how how to find out who your legislator is. Just kind of taught them the process. And anytime the press wanted a patient to interview about this, I stuck a patient in front of the camera, Uh, you know, willingly of course but um and that's how we started raising awareness in the state we i was very careful um making sure that i was putting and and this is delicate you have to understand that it's a very conservative state so i had to be very mindful about the individuals that i would put in front of the camera or put in front of a legislator they had to be um presentable in the sense that i needed people who weren't heavily tattooed or had facial gauges or you know earrings. We we have 90% of our legislative body is active LDS. And um, it wasn't a prejudiced thing towards individuals who are colorful characters. It was trying to match um, the, uh, the exterior so that the legislator wasn't caught up on um, the packaging that they would miss the message. Yeah. So the message was far more important. So we were looking for conservative in appearance individuals to share their stories. Um, and I, because we did have uh, many people who weren't active LDS who advocated with us. The, the whole point in truce was um, for me was to shed your labels, put aside that you're a Republican or a Democrat or a libertarian. You are just a patient. You're a human being who suffers. And what we're trying to do is is raise awareness that we all suffer. And cancer doesn't care what label you wear. It it comes and and it harms everyone regardless. It doesn't have a a prejudice. Um, 
So that was a, a lot of the, what we were trying to do is not just raise awareness about cannabis, but trying to build a bridge. Um, the naming of truce was intentional. We wanted a truce to the drug war. We wanted a truce to kind of our, our differences. And if we could set our labels aside, maybe we could get more people aware of what was happening. And, and it and, did. And tell me again what it's an acronym for. Truce? Together, truce is Together for Responsible Use and Cannabis Education. Okay. So we were, have, we were doing heavy cannabis education out in the community. We were hosting panel events in libraries. We were running documentary series, um, especially the one, The Scientist, by, that is the story of Dr. Raphael Meshulam, who's based in Jerusalem, sharing with the community that there's real science here to help patients. Um, and then also educating about the drug war, how this all started, you know, and that cannabis used to be part of our pharmacopoeia, it used to be in our medic medicine cabinet, or excuse me, our medicine cabinets until politics came involved. You know, in, in the 1930s, we start seeing Anslinger and a bunch of other things happening. So educating our community about all of this, people really started to question, why is this prohibitive? See, I Why? didn't know that. I didn't know that history that it was part of the like mainstream medicine until like the 1930s. And we don't need yeah. to spend a lot of time with it, but could you touch on it a little bit? Because that that's interesting to me. Sure, um, we did just, have just it. without going down that huge rabbit hole. Because I'm sure we could talk <laughs> about that for hours. We could. We actually could. But um, yeah, it was part of our pharmacopoeia. It was known as cannabis in our pharmacopoeia. <clears throat> and what what happened? And how the, the story goes. And, you know, it's always got to be careful about history because you hear one story and you don't always know how accurate it is. But the yeah. common myth within the cannabis space is that Anslinger, who was in charge of the then, you know, before it was the FBI, but was in charge of that prohibition, alcohol prohibition was ending. Mm -hmm. And um, they needed a new something to keep their doors open and, and keep um, the FBI going. So cannabis was the, the new dirty thing that he was going to take on. There was mm -hmm. a few people supposedly um, as the story goes or the myth goes um, also people were getting concerned who were in the paper industry about hemp becoming a, a viable commodity. And one of these individuals was the, the paper tycoon and Dang it, I forgot his name. His name just escaped me. Um, dang it. Oh, I'm I'd be sorry. impressed. I'd be really impressed if you remembered the name of the paper tycoon in 1930. No, but he's he's very much part of the story because yeah. he did a lot of um, slanderous propaganda on hemp and marijuana and and kind of was in step with what Anslinger was doing. So it was a very um, interesting dynamic to have an industry attacked from a political side as well as other industries being concerned about its development. And yeah. So um, there was this propaganda campaign that was started as sort of misinformation, disinformation thing. Um, instead of using the word cannabis, they changed it to the more Mexican term of marijuana, which is mm. something that was is commonly referred to. Um, in in Mexico, the reason why they did that sort of uh, messaging was to make it sound more exotic. There was definitely a prejudice 
towards yeah. Mexicans and others in our country. That's always been the case. And um, using cannabis as, you know, the jazz cigarette, the, you know, the darkies use it to seduce white women. All this stuff was part of the propaganda that went on with medical cannabis or with cannabis, which was really hard because, you know, a lot of people were hearing the word marijuana in the paper and they didn't understand that's the cough medicine that's sitting in your cabinet right now. That's what cannabis sativa is. And so um, they, they were able to start convincing people that this was a bad thing that needed to be squashed. They were running horrible stories. You know, a, a guy killed his family because he was whacked out on a, you know, a marijuana cigarette. This is the kind of, of things that they were seeing. Yellow journalism is what it got termed as this just smear campaign was happening. So in the 30s, 1937, um, there was a push for cannabis to become prohibited and it became illegal. There was the marijuana tax that happened. Um, five years later, do, there, do, you have a, do you have a dog in there? I do. Oh, oh what's his name? In. No, no, no. It's Luna. okay. It's fine. Luna. No, I, no. Hey, Christine, I want to thank <laughs> Luna for being part of the podcast. I just, <laughs> I just wanted to be sure what I was hearing there. It's not a problem at all. We love you, Luna. She slipped in here. She's a good little sport. Yeah. Um, but uh, as far as the, okay, back to the cannabis history. Yeah. Was, so um, there was a, a governor, LaGuardia of mm. New York, who did not believe this crap that the government was pushing that cannabis was bad. And he conducted a study, a five-year study. And in 1942-43, Anslinger quickly had that study destroyed. And again, your listeners, I'm not making these new things up. You can Google search this. This is the stuff that I found and shared with my, my dad. Like, you don't understand that. Like, we've been lied to. Our, our, th this history has been lied to. And so um, sharing that information with him and with others, you know, people started to really question, well, then why is it prohibitive? Because then you start to go through the whole history. So in 45, it's, you know, we have this study that squashed. And over the next several years, there was just this hushedness that there wasn't really anything going on. And in the 1960s, a young scientist by the name of Dr. Raphael Meshulam was commissioned by a... Uh, U.S. Senator to do a study on cannabis because his son had been gotten busted by, you know, um, law enforcement regarding cannabis. So this started this, this scientist, this Jewish scientist starting to isolate different compounds in, in cannabis and trying to learn and get a little bit more knowledge on what this, this plant material is and, and how it relates to the human body. He discovered back then in the 60s, he had isolated CBD and THC and had discovered that, that um, there had some, been some effects on CBD with epilepsy patients. They had been doing a study on epileptic uh, pediatric patients. Nobody wanted to do anything with that. Mm. And that sat in silence mm. for years, for years and years and years. Then you start to see things pop up in the 80s and the 90s. You're starting to see these different studies. There was a study done 
in the 90s, or excuse me, in the 80s, comparing Marinol, which was a synthesized THC that I told you about, and smoked cannabis, and if they, um, which was more effective. In, in the study, the patient said that the smoked cannabis was far more effective for them than the Marinol, but Marinol is what we have on the market. Because so, the, the Marinol is a synthesized THC made correct. in a lab? Correct, correct. Um, and that, but that's what we have, and we still have cannabis as a Schedule One substance. Um, for your listeners, you know, Dr. Raphael uh, was doing those studies in the 60s, and as some of your listeners may know, or maybe may not know, the Controlled Substance Act, which was um, pushed by Nixon, happened in 1971. So we have Prohibition, the Marijuana Tax Act in 37, this year of just dry spell of nothing going on, um, crackdown on, you know, cannabis. And then in the 70s, we have this major um, rescheduling and, and the structure of the Controlled Substance Act. That's where we come in with the, you know, the schedules and cannabis being in a Schedule One, meaning there's no medicinal value. So it's learning this sort of deeper history about drug policy in our country and where it stemmed from, realizing that it was racially motivated. Um, it, it, it just starts to great on your nerves a little bit because for me seeing how much it it affected my health and gave me such positive results to think it was prohibited because of a political agenda and that we've been locking human beings up in cages and and destroying communities because of that because of politics it infuriated me i i just couldn't i was at my wits end over this i mean i remember my father telling horror stories about these undercover raids that he was part of. And I, looking back in 40 year old eyes at the child hearing these stories, I'm like, all this stuff could have been avoided. Like, I, I just don't understand why drug policy shaped the way it did in this country and made enemy enemies out of, out of people who were struggling with substance use and abuse. It was, it was very strange to me. And so learning about the cannabis history, um, I started speaking. I've spoken at the colleges. I've, I, I bring a panel. Um, people who are on my board, I have a pain physician. I have a neuroscientist. I have a, a first, I, I had a lot of people who had skill sets that could really benefit um, sharing their knowledge with the community. I had a licensed clinical social worker who specialized in harm reduction and, you know, drug, drug harm reduction. She was a, a user of hard substances and went through a program and got rehabilitated. And she now tries to help addicts with that. So we had a lot of wonderful, talented people, part of our organization, hoping to raise awareness. Utah has an opiate overdose death rate that is outrageous. I mean, for the longest time, we were fourth in the nation. We've now slipped to number seven, and it's not because our numbers improved. Unfortunately, other states have gotten worse mm. with their, their um, drug addiction, addiction issues. So for me, when I started campaigning here in Utah, it wasn't just that I was mitigating my symptoms. Um, I'm Luckily, blessed that I didn't have an addiction issue. I definitely, my body was dependent on opiates, but I'd never gotten to 
trouble of drug seeking where I was doctor shopping. Yeah. Um, but definitely the dependency was there and cannabis offered major relief for that. And so that was truly helpful and beneficial for me. And then when I started pushing for cannabis and talking about these other issues, you know, this um, history about our drug policy in the country and why are we locking up individuals when we see that this particular plant has so much medicinal value? How, how, much, how much of your uh, recovery do you attribute mm-hmm. to using cannabis compared to going off of these other substances? Because I'm, I'm sure that both of them had an impact. Absolutely. Both had you. a tremendous impact. Well, because coming off of the pharmaceuticals, I lost close to 100 pounds, lost really? about 85 pounds because I was so sedated and it, the pharmaceuticals just made me crave junk food. Like mm. all, you know, you're not moving, so you're just eating and you're just gaining weight. And it's just, it's horrible. But coming off of the pharmaceuticals, I craved healthier food. Mm. Um, there was, it was a whole system reboot that, that happened. And that's why I, I'm like, it's not just cannabis, but it was the catalyst for me. And I want to give it that acknowledgement. It definitely was the catalyst to, towards health improvement. Um, but it was never, it's not the end of the journey for me. It was a gateway out of pharmaceutical drugs. I, I think it's funny that everybody thinks it's the gateway drug, but it actually, <laughs> it, was <the> gateway out. <laughs> it was the gateway out for me. I, it was the thing that um, opened up the door to a different life. And I, well, cause I, I always look at, you know, the pharmaceuticals that they give out and there's all this long list of potential side effects. And I imagine mm-hmm. when you're combining this and that and all of these different cocktails of prescription drugs that you had, that it would impact just a- everything in your life, your overall mood and just depression. and just, Always, uh, always. And, uh, and going back to give my, my ex a nod, like it does affect your mood. It affects your personality. Yeah. Um, opiates affect your personality. They absolutely affect your personality. But chronic pain and chronic illness and severe depression, all of that, it, it, play, it wreaks havoc on a person. Yeah. So um, that's why I, I was so so adamant about pushing for policy change in this this state i to go that many years so isolated from people and and places and things um i just i knew other people were suffering i knew other people were suffering in this state and they just didn't have to so i mean that's really the big reason why i pushed as hard as i did is you learn the history of drug policy in the state and then when you have such a profound experience firsthand, you, it's wrong to be quiet about it. It just, yeah. it just is. It, when your story yields itself to a cause, you, have, you absolutely have an, um, a choice. You can run or you can lean in. Yeah. And I, I chose to lean in on this one. And I remember you telling me when we talked on the phone I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I remember that it was really impressive that at the time you started this, uh, support for medicalized cannabis in Utah was at one level. And at one point it got to an incredible level. It and there is. was this little teeny tiny group that wasn't all that happy 
with that, <laughs> which is kind of the direction that we're going. So, so could you t- g- give me those numbers and so, tell me? Of course. Yeah. So when I first started advocating in the state and people can Google it if they would like to check my numbers, we were polling at 51 support, 51% support of medical cannabis. That was in 2014. That was for the CBD only bill. And that's, that's just where the support was. By and, and fast forward to 2018, that's the year of the ballot initiative. We were polling in June of 2018 at 78% support. Was that for whole plant? That's for whole plant access whole plant medical, medical cannabis. That was, yes. And um, do, do so, you happen to have like the whole plant uh, uh, statistics for 2014 or you only had you only had the polling data for the it just I think for then it was not listed it was just medical cannabis we Hmm. didn't clarify like was it oil was it flour it was just you know what is your support for medical cannabis and that's you know according to whatever the population understood medical cannabis to be at that point in time and in 2014 we only had whole plant medical cannabis. There was no such thing in any other state of CBD only anything. Yeah. That wasn't a thing in, in 2014. So and for so those who from, don't went, know the history, I'm sorry, so, go ahead. So it went from 51 to 78 in Correct. four years? In four years. And, and I know you didn't want to take too much credit <laughs> for that, but your organization and, and people that were involved with you, how, how much of a role do you think that, that Truce had in raising awareness and, and gaining that support? Significant. It was, yeah. it was. What kinds of things did you do? Um, we got patient stories out. We did videos, we did panel events. Um, I spoke anywhere and everywhere people asked me to come. I've been in different areas of the state. It was doing interviews. I did a lot of interviews with the press. When I did interviews with the press, I'd always take a little bit extra time to educate the press because I knew this was an issue that not everybody understood. And it was important to me that they asked good follow-up questions. So a lot of my energy and effort was educating um, media and individuals. I developed some relationships with legislators and county commissioners and some prominent figures in our state to help educate them. Um, it, was, it was just an education campaign. You know, we did some email blasts. We did a little bit of newsletters, not a lot. It was mostly social media and public outreach, uh, just getting out there, being on panels. How was this funded? <laughs> um, most of it was out of my, I should say out of my husband's um, uh, generous donating of time and effort, but it was from pleading on Facebook for donations. We mm-hmm. didn't really have uh, large donors. We've always been very, very modest. Uh, we don't have people who take salaries. So it was just donations, fundraising that I would do on Facebook. Um, I think I got two large donations from two donors in a couple of thousand dollar, you know, $10,000 range, which was phenomenal. Um, That helped pay for one of our polls that we did. We did a poll back in 2014, um, trying to get an idea of where everybody was sitting on medical cannabis and stuff. So that's how you got that, that 51% Mm -hmm. number. Not that number that was done by a newspaper. I think our poll was done 
um, in 2016 or 15. And that, that poll was then showing we were starting to really get people excited. It was showing Mm. that we were at 70% support. Mm. So um, the support went up really quickly. Um, I always made myself just available. I just Mm. wanted anybody who wanted to learn about it to, to have access to me. I even, I've told you so much. I don't know why I wouldn't be telling you more, (laughs) but um, I had a few, uh, several articles that were on the front page um, Mm. in the paper and the reporter who did that would, you know, they would message me and say, Hey, I've got this patient who wants to know if they can reach out to you. And, you know, I'd give my personal information out. I, got on the phone and chatted. And a lot of these people were elderly LDS individuals who were afraid to talk to anybody about it. And for whatever reason, because they saw me in the paper, I looked, you know, conservative enough for them. They felt comfortable enough to talk to me. Um, I'd show up to their house and I would teach them and show them what cannabis looked like. I would bring my, my cannabis books uh, on a couple of occasions, I actually got um, these elderly patients stoned for the very first time in their life. <laughs> I know, I know. But I had a vaporizing machine. I had something yeah. called a, vo- a volcano. Yeah. And um, I always brought the stuff in case they were curious. It was never with the intent, I'm going to go get them stoned. Yeah. It was if they, um, I, I always, I brought off some printed material. Um and I would sit and I probably spend about two hours, two or three hours with them. And generally on both occasions, it was with the spouse there, the elderly spouse was there and I would get them high and we would talk and we'd sit there and I, you know, kind of babysit them as they're experiencing cannabis for the first time. Yeah. And it was, those were. What were some of their conditions that they were looking to have mitigated? Um. One lady that I went and saw had had some neuropathy pain and stuff in her feet. I think she had diabetes. She had multiple surgeries done on her feet. And so there was a lot of numbing and pain. Uh, she had pins and rods. So she was mm. dealing with chronic pain. Um, and, and for while we were there, we had a great time. We got to visit and talk and, re, you know, she got to relax. And that's a little bit of what cannabis does. I don't know if it ever completely took away my pain, but it definitely provided distance Mm -hmm. between it, um, has a dissociative property to it. And while I was in that space with these patients, um, I just would do talk with them. Like people don't understand the loneliness that goes on with being somebody who is, who's always sick, always sick. Your loved ones don't want to hear it anymore. (laughs) And so these moments when I would spend time with these patients, um, another patient was a cancer patient, another patient, um, MS patient, uh, Parkinson's patient. Um, goodness. There's some of these patients have some very complicated diseases and conditions. Um, EDS, um, Ehlers-Down syndrome is a very kind of, a, it's a genetic condition and it attacks the soft tissue um, between your joints and stuff and makes you dislocate. Yeah. So I, I, I've, I've met so many different patients that I've gotten stoned with. Yeah. Um, but it's been such a beautiful human bonding experience, trying to share yeah. with them that they have the ability and power to kind of treat themselves. 
Um, but for me, again, it was a sort of a whole package deal. I'm not somebody that just says, hey, this is cannabis and um, it's going to cure everything. It's not a panacea. It's just not. And, um, and that's what I would tell these patients that I would sit with, like, look, this is going to give you some relief, but you got to do other things. You know, yeah. you got to cut back on your meds where you can. You got to start skipping some doses, let your doctor know that you want to taper down and replace those sedating type medications with your cannabis. If you're taking sleep aids at night, just use the cannabis at night. And I would get reports from people. Um, they would report into me. I had one gentleman tell me he got rid of 70% of his pharmaceutical drugs. Mm. And that's fantastic. You know, not everybody's going to have the same result I did coming off and being completely pharmaceutical free. Um, but mitigating to 70% of the dosage that this guy was on, that's fantastic. It gives him a ceiling, you know, it gives him wiggle room to, if he has a pain attack, he can go up and now we're not dealing with life, life-threatening dosage dosages you know yes but but because you did that there's probably a pharmaceutical sales rep out there who did not get his mercedes that year <laughs> this is true and i'm so not disappointed about that <laughs> okay, you know, so, well go ahead well i, I was just going to say i you know i i haven't had the same relationship with pain that you've had um but i have i i do have a degenerative disc in my lower back that i've had since i was 19 or 20 years old. And so I've had this chronic pain just nagging all throughout my life. And there was a period of time when it was Norco or Loratab that I was getting prescribed by my doctor. And, you know, these, these opiates that helped a little bit. And I, and, and like you, I was lucky. I don't, I don't think I ever got addicted to them like emotionally or mentally, you know, addicted. Maybe like I, I could tell my tolerance level would change, but, but I had a doctor explain to me that what happens is that it actually increased the number of pain receptors in my body. So it, it was kind of having uh, the, the opposite long-term effect that I wanted. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and then in 2016, I moved to Arizona and we had the legal cannabis here. So one of the first things I did was go and get a prescription. That's and, perfect. And, you know, like d doing that and then combining, you know, like being more active, going on hikes, it, it really made a, a difference in my life and in, in getting off of the, the, the open. And not that I was taking them all the time, just when I would have like major flare ups, but right. I, I, I'm able to manage that pain so much better now. It's, it's almost like thinking of a different life. Uh, it was. Before. Yeah. I absolutely agree. Um, that's something that I, I really liked about cannabis is that it did offer an alternative for patients because what happens so often is a patient goes in not thinking that they're having difficulties because, or have a problem. You have a flare back to back and you're using medication more often and it's very easy to see how you could trickle right into a sort of dependency situation. Yeah. That was a big reason why I wanted to help some of these patients um, is that we all can relate to this. You know, yeah. we have a loved one or somebody who can absolutely relate to that experience. So as I journeyed in, in meeting these patients, um, we, st we kept trucking along on policy. You know, I, I was, it was crazy. I'd be up on the hill or out in the community doing something, um, an event or, you know, a speaking engagement 
And then during the days or in the evenings on the phone at night with different patients or even, you know, elected officials who said, you know, I have a, a child that needs access. You know, I was hearing from all kinds of people. So um, as time went on, we kept lobbying on the Hill. Different bills would try to get passed. And it, it came, we came to the realization, um, especially after a couple of our, I would call, um, perspective or at least uh, people, legislators who had the, the ability or the potential to write legislation and carry it, they retired. And so we didn't really have champions on the Hill that can help us. We just had opponents. Um, and we realized we weren't getting anywhere year after year, um, 2017, 2018, we just got garbage presented to us. We had like right to try bills. So if you had six months, um, if you were on hospice and you had six months less, six months or less to live, the state was going to let you try cannabis. But if after six months you hadn't died, you couldn't use cannabis anymore. <laughs> It's just horrible, horrible legislation. So, Who's coming know, up with these ideas? And it's like, yeah, this is acceptable. Where, oh, where, is that, where does stuff like that come from? Do you want to know the legislators' names? Because I don't mind sharing them. So right. uh, it's just Representative, Representative Brad Daw, who is out of uh, Utah County, was, was the gentleman that came up with that, and a pharmacist from down in St. George. These were the two gentlemen who ran these bills. They were both um, in opposition to cannabis to begin with. A pharmacist obviously has um, a conflict with he's trying to write cannabis le legislation. Yeah. And then this gentleman, um, Representative Brad Daw, was part of an anti-drug organization he sat on their board so he was already you know he already had his prejudice so these were the people who were left on the hill to run this bill <clears throat> and, and i'm assuming that both of them were members of the anti-drug church they are in yeah. fact right. they are i'm sure devout priesthood holders yes. so um these these men did not want to engage with the patients and with us. Uh, we, we were already labeled as, as, you know, the opponents because we worked with Senator Madsen. Senator Madsen, for your audience's little tidbit of knowledge, was the grandson of Spencer Kimball. So, um, excuse me, Benson. And um, I, it was good to have somebody who was the grandson of a prophet, but it also it came with some baggage, you know, the church had a problem with, with us from out of the gate, you know, Mark was sort of brand this rebel rouser of sorts. And we were just this, um, I was cautioned and begged, you know, told, you know, don't engage with this legislator. Don't, you know, he, he doesn't have the best reputation. Um, in the sense that, you know, he, he is a maverick, you know, he, he kind of does things his own kind of way. I didn't know anything is, about his politics. Is, is, is he an active Mormon or is he? Yes, is he, yes, yeah. yes, yes. But he's, he's an just, active Mormon who thinks his own thoughts and goes his own way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's, he's a Republican. He was, a, he, he was libertarian leaning. So if, I don't know if that helps guide you a little bit. He, he, has, um, he was just a different, uh, different. He was a liberty-minded Republican 
in a very conservative red state. Mm -hmm. So he was, you know, uh, I don't know how else to phrase it like that. I mean, I didn't know much about about him and his politics. Like I said, you know, I've been bedridden housebound, so I, right. I wasn't following these things. I just knew he was a, a senator who was wanting to run this bill, and I wanted to give him whatever chance he could at, at making a good show of it. Yeah. Um, so we definitely had the establishment against us from the beginning. Can, can I ask you with, with Senator Madsen, because yes. I understand what your motivation was. What, what was his motivation? Why, why did he get behind? Oh, sure. Um, he had, like you, a back injury. He has some disc injuries from, I guess, playing football as a teen or, or maybe it was in college. He was on a fentanyl patch just like I was. Um, his fentanyl patch, the reservoir in the patch, burst and he OD'd. Oh, geez. He, yeah, he had been moving um, some, like some bags of dirt from one end of the yard to the other. And that's when he thinks it, the, the, the rip happened because he felt really tired and he told his daughter, you know, come wake me up in 10 minutes. I got to lay down. And his wife found him and she resuscitated him. They went to the emergency room and they brought him back. Um, but it was his physician that told him that cannabis might be a better alternative for pain. And so that's why he got on board and wanted to do this. As he See, but at this time it. when the physician recommended that to him, was there any legal way for him to get it? No, no, oh. no, no. Um, and then he, you know, saw the CBD movement happened the, the you know the children that they brought up there with epilepsy that pulled at his heartstrings and mm -hmm. and he felt like they didn't go far enough and that's why the following year in 2015 he wanted to go further okay but the the epilepsy moms that that got their cbd oil had made a deal with the legislators that had worked on it um that they wouldn't come back and push for more mm. well i wasn't part of that bargain. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't make any deals with anybody. So more people started to show up and say, Hey, well, my child needs THC for these seizure controls. Yeah. And so those patients got fed to me. And then, like I said, you know, when something important has to happen, the universe sort of <laughs> just pulls people together. Yeah. Um, Mark was extremely happy to meet me. Um, I was thrilled to meet somebody who understood um, that there was more components to this plant going going on than just a CBD thing. He was very open to hearing. We introduced him, and I say we because I referenced my colleague earlier, the, the Crohn's patient. She has a an incredible story herself, but she was a cannabis journalist, and so she's very connected to a lot of the physicians and researchers in this space. She's done most of their interviews. So she was able to connect the senator with these these figures, with dispensaries in Colorado, so that he could get a, a deeper education on this plant and and you know uh, argue it on the floor in the House in the Senate, you know, try to give it some weight. So we did our best as advocates, as just you know people in the community, to educate our legislators and our community. Um, through the through the policymaking route, through the you know the work on the hill, and it just didn't get anywhere. So we did decide in our state we have a ballot initiative access. It's part of our Utah Constitution that um, the people have the same legislative power as the legislators. So we're on equal footing, meaning we could run a ballot initiative. And um, but the initiative 
requirements are quite ridiculous and ex extensive. You have to get 10% of the vote of the people who registered to vote. Um, like in 26 of the 29 states, it's our counties. It had a lot of different little hoop jumping we had to do to, to get something onto the ballot. So in 2016, after that session ended and Senator Madsen retired, we decided that it was we had to do a ballot initiative. And we decided in 2017 to file an initiative. We were still advocating on the Hill for policy change, but at that time we filed language for a ballot initiative. I was one of the petitioners for that and um, got it on to the signature gathering part of the campaign, which is a, a 319 day window. You have 319 days to collect. Um, we had to collect 113,000 signatures and we collected a raw 200,000 signatures in the entire state. We got 27 of the 29 uh, counties collected. We did an amazing job doing it, but we had a lot of opposition the entire time. Um, as we were gathering signatures, there was um, a lot of neg negative ad running going on. Those groups that I mentioned, the Sutherland Institute, the UMA, and the Eagle Forum, um, years earlier when I was in that meeting, these guys definitely became the opposition. They were our opponents. They were constantly out in the community uh, propagating lies about the bill. Hi, I'm an executive from the marijuana industry. And I'm a real Utah mom. I want you to vote yes on Proposition 2 to legalize marijuana here in Utah. And I want you to vote no so we can take the time to draft something better for Utah that will protect our kids and ensure we don't make the same mistakes we've seen in other states. Do you not want to help people? Marijuana helps with seizures, opioid addictions, pain relief, the list goes on and on. Let me be very clear. It's not medical marijuana I have a problem with. I understand it has its health benefits. It's you I have a problem with. This bill wasn't written by the state of Utah. It was written by big business with special interests, you. It was written by you. It's designed specifically to benefit him. You know, that's not true. It also helps my business partners. That's what I'm talking about. He's trying to push this bill through because it'll make him millions. Let me give you an example. If we pass this bill, the state of Utah won't receive a single penny in sales tax from the sale of marijuana. Even Colorado and California receive sales tax. How is that fair? Who benefits? Him. Well, you don't charge taxes on other medications. Yes, but this bill isn't treating marijuana like other medications. For example, this bill says the medical doctors won't be the ones prescribing the doses. That will be left to the dispensaries, who, by the way, make more money for selling larger doses. That's just crazy. This bill also allows dispensaries to be built as close as 600 feet from the schools. Who benefits from that? Not our kids, that's for sure. We're just trying to create as many dispensaries as possible so everyone can enjoy this wonderful week. And another thing, his bill says if someone is high on marijuana, they get into a car and drive, and as long as they have their card on them, they can't get a ticket for driving under the influence. Are you kidding me? Does that protect our kids? Hey, come on. And here's my favorite one. The bill requires absolutely no ID check at the dispensary to pick up marijuana. So there's nothing to stop a kid from taking their parent's card, walking down to the dispensary, that by the way is 600 feet from their school, 
and getting pot for all their friends. None of this is good for Utah. It's just good for him and his special interest cronies. Honestly, I, I don't care how this affects you or your community. To be honest, I've never even been in Utah, but I have heard that everyone there is pro-medical marijuana, so I can pretty much put whatever I want in this bill and get away with it, and you know, there's nothing you can do to stop me. Oh yes, there is. Right, Utah? He just said he doesn't care. Vote no on Proposition 2 and send a clear message that we won't be rushed into something that doesn't benefit Utah families. And I've just scratched the surface of what's wrong with this bill. I encourage you to read all 28 pages and discover why Governor Herbert, Utah Medical Association, Utah Sheriff's Office, and many others are standing against it. Join us this election day. Vote no. So what happened, we got signatures um, gathered all the way to 2018 was when, when we had to file all the signatures and have them certified. So April of 2018, um, we filed all of the signatures and we qualified on 420. <laughs> we qualified on 420, which for some of you who, who know, that's sort of a, a cannabis holiday. Why? And, Why is it? Um, as the legend goes, yeah. and it is, it is a, a myth and a story. There was these California teens that would gather every day after school at 4:20 to go smoke weed, and so it's become sort of this, you know, part was of it like culture. an a Green Day song or something like that. Or it may have been, but this the 4:20 thing has been around since mm. the 70s. Oh, has it? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's there might be a. A Green Day 420 song. But so let's see. Uh, so you were you were getting a lot of opposition as you were getting oh, these signatures together. So we got the signatures filed, and the church decides to come out against it, um, against Proposition Two. So they put out a statement the day after we um, certify. It's, I think it's on 421. They sent out a statement. It's on a Friday. It's a Friday dump. So I don't know if anybody follows politics, but if you want to bury a story, you do it on a Friday dump. Mm -hmm. And so they do on a Friday dump. The church puts out this statement that they are against proposition two and you know, this whole thing. Well, one of my board members was my vice chair is active LDS. I made it a point with my organization to have half LDS and half non LDS people. Um, again, because we are in the state that we are, it made sense to me. I needed to be mindful about messaging and everything else. So this, um, my vice chair decides that he's writing the church and it's great because he is a prolific writer when it comes to religious context. So he writes this, quite lengthy email fills it with all kinds of scriptures and speaks, you know, the language in which Marty Stevens, who is the church lobbyist and is also the church, um, was also the house speaker previous, just to give your audience an understanding of the very thin line between politics and religion in our state. So the church lobbyist was the former speaker of the house and my vice chair writes him an email um, just distraught over what, what the church is doing, you know, and how they're harming and affecting 
so many of their members. Because our, our fight and our contention has been that the church has not come out against medical cannabis in any other state. So why are they doing it here in Utah? They didn't make a stink about medical cannabis in any other state. Um, and so he, he makes the argument and asks Marty if he could bring some patients in to meet with him. We have a group of LDS patients that he brought in. We also I have an advocate that I know from Australia who is the lead advocate in Australia. Her son has a brain tumor and she happens to be active LDS. So she's fighting for cannabis access in her country too. So she gets zoomed in for this conference. The vice chair takes these LDS members in and they spend like an hour or two bearing their testimony about their experience with cannabis and their, their desire for access. Marty agrees to meet with Truce and I bring um, Epilepsy Association. Epilepsy Association is the group that passed the CBD bill. So I asked them to be part of the conversation because they are my allies in this, this walk. So it is me and um, Doug Rice, who is the president of the Ep Epilepsy Association. He has a nonverbal disabled child who benefits from cannabis and specifically THC. It helps control her seizures quite effectively. And um, their ED is in the meeting. Me, my board chair and vice chair are in the meeting with, with the church. And during this meeting, you know, Marty tells me that, you know, he, he wants to stop the ballot initiative. And I explained to him that that's not possible. We've certified it's on the ballot at this point. And this is June of 2018. We certified in April. And um, he, he says, well, then why are you guys in here? Why do you want to meet with me? And I, I had indicated that the bill that was going to pass had some major flaws in it. And Truce always knew it had flaws. Um, we were working with allies who felt like the, the flaws that were in the bill were just minor. Um, and it would be something we could build on legislatively. And so my desire was to get in conversations and talks with building that for the following year. The session was only six months away, so it's not unusual to start having that conversation so that we could start shopping language around. I'd learned enough in those past two and a half, three years that I knew that we needed to start having that conversation. Um, the church didn't seem interested <clears throat> in building something better. Uh, they, they wanted to squash Prop 2 and revamp it entirely. And he had indicated to me, um, well, you guys but, come up with what you want to do. Go ahead. Yeah. When, when you're talking about the, the church here. Yes. I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, who, who, who is representing the Mormon church in these, these activities with you? Um, Marty Stevens. Okay. He is the, the church lobbyist. So I'm in the church office building. He is that, is that's his that's his job he's the lobbyist that's, for the church he's the lobbyist for the church okay and the way he presented to me if i'm talking to him i'm talking to the brethren that's how he presented it to me so and not just me but to all of us you know this is this is stuff that is going to the brethren they are aware of all of our conversations and everything so um i Marty, we, we kind of end that meeting. It was like an hour long meeting. It wasn't too terribly long, but I could sense that, that things were not really kosher. Um, he, he had indicated um, 
but he hopes that we can work together because there are definitely people who don't want this to happen. And then he used a term that I was just shocked at. He says, cause war is coming. I was like, war is coming. What? I remember leaving that going, well, that's such a very strange way of framing that. Um, me and Doug were a little taken back by it, but we thought it was a positive meeting, at least a first step for us to maybe potentially work with the church at, at, at I don't know, you know, policy the next year. What, what do you think he was trying to tell you by saying war is coming? I think he was... Uh, <laughs> I think he was letting me know that the the opposition was definitely gearing up to to really kind of beat the crap out of prop two because we had certified and he was i um I got an email from him the next morning it was we didn't have to think too long to figure out what it is he was getting at so we got we all that attended the meeting all got an an email and if you want that, I can send that to you because at this point I'm not hiding anything um, and in the email he indicated. His desires um, to, of course, protect the children, always, always the children, protect the children, and um, that they needed to come up with an agreement. And if they could find something, uh, they're going to contact the Chamber of Commerce. They're going to contact the legislators. We're going to have a special session, and we'll do all this. And if we don't do all this, there's, there's at least 5 to $10 million that's going to be spent to try to stop us. He spells this out in an email. And I'm reading this the next morning as I'm sipping my sinful tea. And I'm like, holy shit, the church has just threatened to spend five to $10 million and in writing have said that they're going to call on the legislative body for a special session, go to the chamber of commerce, the governor's office. Like it, they list everybody they're going to have involved. And I just, I remember sitting there thinking, I have this very prominent faith talking about heavy political engagement here. And um, I was terrified, I didn't know what to do. So I turned to some friends who were experienced lobbyists who knew Marty Stevens. She was a former Speaker of the House, she wasn't a Speaker of the House, but she worked under the Speaker of the House. She was a representative and now a lobbyist. And I turned to her and I said, I've got this email I want you to read. I'm terrified to mail it, you know, forward it to you. Because at this point in time, you know, these guys are the giants in the state. You know, what the church says and does affects everything. Absolutely. So I was in a position of where I was grateful. I was able to have conversations and try to advocate for, you know, LDS patients and also extremely terrified of screwing this up. I know that so many patients need access and are really kind of depending on us to navigate these waters. So when I shared, she she and her husband, uh, who also is a lobbyist, have worked on Marty's campaigns, have been part of his, you know, election process. I needed to understand what exactly he was saying. So we had lunch. I let her read the email because I had printed it off. I didn't let her keep it because at this point in time, I thought I was protecting the church, oddly. Um, because I think what he had done was wrong and inappropriate. And so I was trying to sort of protect the situation a little bit before it got too out of hand. As soon as those lobbyists read it, they were like, oh, oh, he screwed up. He should not have written this. <laughs> he should not have put this in writing. And, and I said, well, how, 
how do I navigate this? What do I do? Like, how, how do we move from here? And they offered to come with me to meet with Marty for a second follow-up meeting. Um, and I said, that was fantastic. I asked my board chair, who, was not, who is not LDS, and me, and then these two lobbyists to go with me to this meeting. I did not want my vice chair there because he is active LDS and was already struggling with, you know, some church. He was just going through a spiritual crisis and I was worried and concerned that he would be easily manipulated in the situation. And so um, me and the, my board chair had, had agreed that it was best if it was just a small group of us and we went in to talk to the church. Um, that didn't sit well with my board chair and he crashed the meeting that we had with the church the following week. And it turned into kind of a, a very sticky situation. I refused to have the meeting with, with my board, my vice chair there in the room again, because I'd been in the meeting before and I watched the, the emotional manipulation that was going on. Um, was it the kind of situation where he was, he had other bones to pick with the church that were kind of getting in the way of what he was, he would, don't misunderstand. I, I, and, and I'm sorry if I presented it wrong. He is a very devout LDS member. And I think he was struggling internally because he's not from Utah and he moved to Utah and there was a lot of things that I think he was struggling with. Um, and it, it, I could see his desire to please Marty in that first meeting was so profound and so strong uh, it concerned me a great deal. He, I, 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 I lost. So he wasn't my antagonistic advocate. towards the church. No, no, was no, the opposite. no. He was very, very, very respectful um, um, to a point of concerning to me because in a lobbying situation, um, you need to have a level, even playing field, or you're not a, a good negotiator. And having this um, particular individual in the negotiations uh, crippled our side. That's just how I viewed it. As a political strategist, that's just how I viewed it. And so it wasn't, um, but, but he couldn't get past, he thought he was missing out on something by not being in the, in the meeting and was very upset that I was telling him not to be there. Um, and so he just decided to crash it. And Marty had already agreed to the individuals that would be part of that meeting. And he allowed this individual to crash it because he knew. He knew that there was a struggle going on. The, the vice chair in desperation to be part of this meeting. And again, his ego getting too involved started telling um, Marty that truce was just anti-Mormon. And so that's where we started with this whole anti-Mormon bullshit happened, um, which is very frustrating to me. And, and honestly, this is the first time publicly that this part of the story is being shared because my concern was this person my, my vice chair, you become friends. You become friends with these people you advocate with. You care about them. You love them. You get to know their family. You get to know their, their, their struggles and trials that they've been through in life. And I cared about this person a great deal. And I was very worried if our fellow advocates out in the world heard what they may view as um, betrayal they would attack him. And it was very, it was such a stressful situation as it was. Um, but I think it's important to tell and share now because it's, it's what the church 
did afterwards that, that just disgusted me, <laughs> to be honest. Um, they decided this was the, the angle to go, this anti-Mormon Mormon versus, you know, the, the non-Mormon versus the Mormons. And it's so prevalent in this state. It's such an, an old and tiresome war that goes on here. And with truce, we had, for the most part, quieted it to, to some degree. Well, we, were, we weren't putting it out, but we had agreed that doctrine was not going to be discussed. It was not relevant to pushing for medical access. And so it wasn't a problem necessarily in the organization. Everybody had their, their concerns because there was such a, a wide variety of types. You know, there, even in the active, can, um, active Mormon space, you have different types of people who practice the faith. You have very orthodox, devout. Those are the ones that I, who do their, their family home evening every Monday and do their family prayers and their scripture readings. And then you have those who are more Jack Mormon, you know, um, don't particularly care for the whole thing, but they do show up on Sunday because, you know, everybody in the neighborhood does. So you kind of had, we had the whole wide spectrum of, of non-members and members. And when the church turned this into a non, you know, to a non-Mormon Mormon fight is when it really got ugly that, that summer. So a couple months after June, Marty had just ghosted me. He would not respond to any of my emails. He would not respond to any of my text messages. He started just talking with that vice chair. Um, my organization had, because of what he did and how he went about doing that, we um, encouraged him to resign from our organization because we felt that he had um, breached our our directive, our motives. Our he was not looking out for patients; he was looking out for his uh, placement in in all of this. And that really, I have a problem with that. I have a problem with that. At any rate, um, two months later, we get wind, and we're dealing with all kinds of crap out in the public now. There is happening as I'm dealing with the church and all this and this, these conversations, we're allowed a 30 day window where people who weren't supportive of the proposition could go back out to the community to people who have signed it and convince them to retract their signature off of the ballot initiative. So a campaign had been started by the UMA and those in opposition to us to have people uh, pull their signatures off of uh, the ballot. And they were being lied to. They were told that all kinds of things were going on, that there was a new ballot that was being written because this one had some errors in it. Um, I'm up one night. I don't sleep very well. So I'm up one night and a lady sends me a video of her recording this lie being told to her at her front door. Sorry, sweetie. <laughs> Your business, how are you? I'm doing pretty okay, good. good. How are you? Good. Well, we are just business voters. It's okay if I talk to you right here. Uh -huh. Okay. About the Utah Cannabis Act. Uh -huh. Were you aware that what you signed was not for marijuana, just for cannabis? Yes. You are? Okay. You knew that when you signed it? Yes. Okay. And they explained that to you or went through that with you? Yes. By making medical cannabis legal, 
it means that any type of smoking, anything, is a big deal. It's a felony. Where currently it's not, <laughs> if that makes sense. It doesn't really. Okay. Um, and it is this organization with the UMA saying that there's these lies. And I see this video and I freak out. Me and one of my other board members write up a press release and we send it out to the press. Um, this video of the lies that are being told to get people to pull their signatures off of the ballot. Um, again, the, t the church is attached to this campaign. They're part of the coalition that's, that's um, pushing and doing all these kind of dirty tricks, trying to get people to not support the ballot initiative. And my press friends think it, I, I'm hilarious because I sent that video. We got that video like at one o'clock in the morning mm -hmm. and um, I had a press release out by 4.30. Wow. <laughs> I was so, like I was running on adrenaline. Yeah. To, to me, all these, and we had big opponents against us. Um, so let me pop back to the story. So June, um, we meet with the church. We have these people out that are trying to pull signatures off. Um, they're unsuccessful because we start having everybody reporting. Everybody's reporting to us that we had these guys come to our door. And so they're really starting to push back on, on this um, sanit you know, anti-signature um, campaign that's going on. Uh, after that's over, we're in the clear. We know that everything's going to the ballot. August of that year, 2018, the church decides to hold a press conference with several other individuals in the, in the community. Um, and you, you guys won't know who these power players are, so I'll just give you the general. We have what I call the morality police. So the church is involved there. The LDS church is um, on this stage. They have um, one of the financial bigwigs in the state that runs Zions Bank and um, Gail Miller, who owns the Utah Jazz. Big many people in our state, they're on the stage. We also have the UMA, the Utah Medical Association, on the stage. We have several of the legislative body being represented in front of the House and the Senate. We have law enforcement on the stage. And what we also have are some LDS members who are on the stage now, one being my former vice chair. I was on the stage with several of these LDS members who have now decided to work with the church because they think that's the better avenue to go. Um, we were kind of blocked from being in the room for this press conference at first. And then Marty, then as we were recording it on Facebook Live and letting everybody in the community know that we were being blocked and barricaded from coming in, Marty realized that he needed to let us in. He put on a big show about for, for our Facebook Live, I'm going to let my friend, Christine, come in to the press conference. It was a big, ridiculous, obnoxious show of, you know, how sweet and kind and his sing-songy, you know, pulpit voice about, you know, trying to do what's best for the community. Um, it sounds to me, to me like you and Marty still exchange Christmas cards. We do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, he... he I don't kiss the ring and yeah. I, and I don't have a reverence for the position because I view religion and politics with a general disdain because I feel that they are just tools used by other men 
for manip manipulation and control of, over others. And that really bothers me. And I have a hard time with those who think they're in a position of strength or of power and the way they conduct themselves over others is really, I find obnoxious. And he is definitely an individual that, that abuses position of power. And I think a lot of people do, to be honest, you know, not to just pick on Marty, though he is my favorite to pick on. You know, the Mormons have a word for that. Do It's, it's actually two words. It's unrighteous dominion. Ah, there's a lot of that here. Yeah, pretty <laughs> cool, huh? Yeah. Um, so during this press conference, you know, all these individuals come up and they speak and they explain why they're against the ballot initiative. And me and Doug Rice, who has his daughter in a wheelchair, a couple of other patients. I have a mom who has an epileptic child, you know, that wears a helmet. We're all out here in the audience. The press is watching all of this go down. And um, my vice chair, former vice chair, gets up to speak. And in an emotional response, because I don't think any of us, we didn't plan it. It was just an emotional response. Doug Rice, the president of the Epilepsy Association, a cancer survivor, a 9-11 responder, a firefighter and paramedic, turned his back on his former friend who was speaking out against the ballot initiative we had fought for for the past two years and collected signatures for because he preferred to have the good graces of his church. So Doug turned his back on those patients who spoke, I did too, and so did several other of the individuals that attended the press conference. It was such a, um, a slight to us to have people who had been in the trenches with us, collecting signatures, been at panel events, raising awareness to up and turn their back on patients and on this battle of initiative because their church decided it was not a good bill. And that really it, it frustrated me. It absolutely frustrated me because we had private conversations about the church's overreach. And when it came down to it, when push came to shove, there just wasn't an ability for those people to stand their ground. You know, it, they were heavily influenced. Um, to yeah, I'm okay if you use the word brainwashed now. <laughs> They were brainwashed. Yeah. They were well, brainwashed. And, and it's really there's, hard. There's so much, there's so much power there when you've got your family and your community, your, like your entire life that's saying, yeah. you want to choose the right? Well, this is the right, not that. Exactly. This is exactly. the right. And so the, the needle moves. Yeah. And, and so that's what we started battling here. It wasn't yeah. the, the policy or the verbiage that are actually in the content of that ballot initiative, it was a power struggle that we were dealing with. Well, it's, it's like, People, I'm sure you, you learned how that game of politics was played. And like you said something earlier about shopping the language and the words and knowing who the power players were and how to influence them and access them that, you know, like when, when the Mormon church gets their members that are involved in this, it's really not hard to like send the home teachers, have, you know, right, have right, the, you know, right. like just, just remind them where their yep. loyalties should lie. And yep. that, that's what you were up against. I'm imagining. Or I'm, I'm listening. I've heard you tell me. so. <laughs> it was exactly what I was up against. And it was extremely frustrating to, um, cause I'm just a person. I'm just, you know, I don't have an institution 
behind me, backing me up and, and providing support. You know, I, I have to rely on that these adults that I'm engaging with, you know, have enough fortitude to stand up for what's right. And, and you, you, don't, you don't have a dog in the fight in the sense of you're, there's no like financial incentive no. for you there. I mean, there's, it's, it's just it's helping the right damn thing patients, to do. <laughs> helping, helping other people who are in a situation right. that you could relate to because you were in that for 16 years. And you're like, there's other people that are suffering. They don't need to be suffering. I'm going to go out and put my neck out. Mm-hmm. I said something at one of our very early press conferences, and I truly believe this little quote that I made up. Um, when suffering is the human condition, let compassion be the cure. And that's all I was looking for is like just some compassion for people who are suffering and it may not be what you're accustomed to seeing as medicine, but I promise we can do this in a way that, that can help people and still be safe for the community. And that's what I felt like we were doing and we were pitching. Um, I, I, I wasn't pitching a recreational bill. This was definitely a medicinal bill. There was definitely requirements to see doctors, but it boiled down to the church did not like that it was losing control over its multitude by activists, by activists, you know, I'm a non LDS person. I, I, I had, um, and you're also a woman, right? I am. Okay. I am. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe that's a little part of it too. I don't know. That had, I'm sure that had a lot to do with, um, with it that I am female and non LDS, um, and outspoken and unapologetically so about it. And I, and I tried to articulate, excuse me, not right now, but I tried to articulate <laughs> myself in a manner that's not off-putting. You know, I, I, I wanted to create a, an environment that people felt proud to be associated with. We didn't encourage a lot of the cannabis leaf and um, over you know, it's not on our website. It wasn't on our person. We didn't wear it. If it was ever worn, it was very tactful. It was a small pin, but we tried to, you know, message in a manner that made um, middle America comfortable because that's who I was trying to win over was, is the middle America, the base, the, the, the very ultra liberals, they are already there. They're already there. You know, I was trying to get, you know, the conservative LDS members who weren't quite comfortable. Yeah. But Sisyphus just trying to push else. that, push that rock up the cliff. Exactly. It was, it, it was a hard struggle, you know, yeah. and it wasn't done just by me. Like I had, sure. you know, allies that were very helpful. Um, LDS allies who were getting stories out and messaging and doing their part too. Um, but over time, I think this proved to be even hard for them because the, the church is powerful. The church is powerful. And ultimately, um, idealism <laughs> is, is not something that you can always get things past. You know, I, I get that I'm an idealist and I have an idea of how I think things should look. And for others, they wanted to win. So in this press conference, as we're watching this unfold, my ally, who I didn't really mention up till now, um, runs a libertarian-leaning think tank. And he's watching this all unfold. And he um, approaches me and he says, you know, you should have one of your LDS um, board members talk to the press. 
And so I said, that was fine. She talks to the press and tells them that she's LDS and she still supports Prop 2. And, you know, we kind of end that press conference. Um, we continue to do more TV and radio. We do Radio West. We're on NPR. We're, you know, doing all kinds of TV and audio, you know, radio stuff. Um, in September, by the time September rolls around, we're doing, me and my ally are doing some press on Prop 2 on Radio West. And at this time, um, I'm, I'm struggling with my health. I'm having to use my cane. I'd had a few bouts of hemiplegic migraine attacks. Um, hemiplegic migraines present like strokes where I get left-sided weakness and paralysis. Um, I have speech issues. I'll even have some memory problems. So I was having quite a few of these happen back to back and it was really making me struggle. And so I arrived at our, our um, interview with a cane and kind of embarrassed that I was having to use it because I hadn't used it in probably six years at that point, maybe five. And um, my, my friend said, hey, can you come to uh, the campaign headquarters tomorrow and bring a few of your board members? We have a meeting because we got to talk about some things. And I said, sure. Um, brought my vice chair and chair. My uh, chair was the one that attended the, the church meeting with me earlier the year. And um, Doug, who is the epilepsy uh, president, was out of town, so he was unable to attend. So we go into this meeting, and it's me and my two people and my colleague, you know, my ally and his two people. And he proceeds to tell me that he has entered into negotiation talks with the church. And I'm stunned because when I had made arrangements to go meet with the church, um, they had begged me not to negotiate with the church, not to make any compromise deals or anything. And I said, I'm not, that's not, that wasn't the purpose. That's not why I'm going in there. And so as I'm hearing them tell me that they had entered in negotiation talks with the church and that they had come up with a new bill that they were going to be running um, and that they were talking about doing a special session right after the election day to put forth a new bill and they presented it to me, I was furious. I was absolutely furious. Um, earlier in the year after meeting with the church, I had sent the email that the church had sent to me to former Senator Mark Madsen and asked his input on what I should do. And he wrote back a diatribe. It was like five inches long, all bold type email that said you are in a position of strength do not negotiate do not negotiate with the church at all and so i had stuck to that advice through the summer and as i'm listening to um, this uh, libertarian ally tell me that he'd been in talks mormon lds ally i just i couldn't believe i couldn't believe that he was betraying us um he actually had language. He'd been in conversations for three weeks. So literally after the press conference with the church, he reached out and, and said, let's play ball. Um, I was very upset over this because I was concerned that what I was reading in the language was cutting patients' medication in half. It was trying to run um, health departments as dispensaries 
which you can't do. It's an illegal substance. It's a Schedule One substance. So everything that they were putting in place was just garbage. It was absolute garbage and nonsense. And I, I couldn't understand why we were negotiating with them for, for this worse bill. Were, were they intentionally doing that to make it uh, to, to like impossible to get the product to the patient? Yeah, they don't want they didn't they don't want patients to have access and they want to control of the issue. So this was a ploy absolutely to make it impossible for us to get access. Mm-hmm. Um, so as I'm listening to my friend, he's so excited. He said he's not my friend, but as I'm listening to this ally of mine, tell me about this. He's just so giddy and excited that they're, they're at the table with the church and having this conversation, writing legislation. Um, my board members are feeding into this ally of ours and they're getting excited. And I just think it's all shit. I, I have no, I, and I'm the only one in this meeting of six people that, that, that is going, this is not, this is not good. This is not right. And it's not good. Um, I'm also the only one out of those people that have any real knowledge about cannabis. I've been lobbying back in DC and educating myself on this issue for a long time. And so as they're telling me the things that are going into this bill, I, I'm seeing problems for patients because I've been following the, the, the issue across the country. We, we on truce, we report on other states and their programs and what's coming online. We've been watching it for years and years and years. And so when I'm seeing our build just absolutely get destroyed, I didn't know what else to do. For 24 hours, I sat on this information because I was asked to be sworn to secrecy. Um, don't tell anybody that we're, we have this other bill happening. It can really damage things. You're not allowed to share it with anybody, this, that, and the other. Um, and I didn't know what to do. I... I I had lost um, a lot of support from from my people because it was summertime and people were gone. People weren't they were they were getting burned out on the campaign. So I turned to the legislator that I mentioned much earlier in the story, Senator Steve Urquhart. He was the um, senator and the Senate sponsor for the CBD bill um, that was done years and years ago. He's retired now. And so I called Steve and I tell him what's transpired and and that I'm upset. And he says, wait a minute, you didn't know that this was going on? And I said, no. And he's like, well, the guys called me almost a month ago and asked me to be part of the negotiation conversations. And I told them, hell no, and told them they should not be doing it either. There's nothing good that's going to come out of negotiating with the church. Um, Senator Urquhart, for those who don't know, was the lead sponsor for the LGBTQ bill that we had here running in Utah. So part of the um, 2015, when marriage equality became legal, he was pushing for some um, LGBT issues here in the state and had to take on the church head to head with that. And so he, he knows what it's like to take on the giant, you know, he knows that it's, it's a, it's a nasty fight. Um, so I told him, no, I didn't know that these guys had entered in talks. They had kept me out of the conversation and he came out like a bull in a China shop. He was furious, absolutely furious. And, and like you mentioned, he, he said, this is because you're a woman, they've left you out of the conversation. And, you know, he got into the fight with, um, the church. He came out swinging. He has a, um, online magazine and he started writing his 
personal opinion about what the church was doing. I um, finally shared with him the legislation and we shared it with the press. Um, he and I both let the community know that this is what the church was doing. And, and I did, oh, it's so hard to say it, but yeah, I exposed the, the backroom dealings and that uh, before I did do that, um, I did go to the board, my organization and say, look, this is, this is where we're at. This is the position we're in. This is the roles we're in. Um, our ally has chosen to enter into negotiation chalks. We can either bend the knee and kiss the ring and let the cards fall when they may. Patients will not get what they really truly deserve, but we'll be in the room. Prop two will probably fail if we do that. Or we can be the antagonists <laughs> and say, fuck you, hell no. We're not going to compromise um, our position of strength and we're going to hold to prop two and truce is not going to be part of the negotiations, which means I was walking away from my allies and I was turning my back on the legislators, the morality police, the money in the state, law enforcement. Like we were turning our backs on everybody and we were staying with the people. Um, it was important to me that we stayed with the people. We had registered 78,000 new voters, 78,000 new voters in one year. That's phenomenal. That was an unbelievable um, political, political maneuver that we just hadn't seen. I was registering people who had never voted and they were in their 40s and 50s. Like what this, this particular issue did was awaken people. Um, when we were collecting signatures at concerts, people were telling me, I'll never vote for anybody. The only reason why I'm registering it is to vote for cannabis and that's it. And sure enough, there were so many ballots that just had cannabis marked. They didn't mark any other tickets, any other down tickets or anything. Um, it was a, a phenomenal experience. And that's why I felt absolutely passionate about us not being part of the compromise. And everybody on my board agreed. We were going to stay in this position of we are not compromising. They kept um, extending an invitation for us to be part of their talks. And the talks weren't really talks. They just wanted the ability to say, we did talk to patients. We do have them on board and this is where we are. Um, they were able to convince a few of the signature gatherers to come and be a part of it so they could be part of their picture and gold room ceremony and stuff. The Mormons who were part of the press conference got to be part of this little gold room ceremony of where they did this compromise bill and everything else. Um, it was, it was devastating. It was devastating to watch. And I, I kind of jumping around on this story as I think about it, there was a lot that happened. We had a Fox news debate that was transpiring right before the, the election. And our side was supposed to be on, um, you know, the, the pro prop two side. And then the other side was supposed to have the UMA and a legislator. The Fox news found out that all these guys had been part of the compromise talks. And so they kicked everybody off of the debate and brought in new people, except for one of my guys, because truce was never part of the debate my neuroscientist got to sit on in this, you know, number two position on the chair. Fox news asked me to participate and sit in the number one position for the other side of the debate. 
So the night before the Gold Room ceremony, I'm on Fox News Live doing a debate with the church and a former legis uh, legislator, Brad Daw, debating the merits of Prop 2. And we do an incredible job. Um, we nailed it. The audience was filled with patience. They couldn't help but clap and roar. It was, it was an incredible time to be able to debate and argue why Prop 2 needed to go forward. The next day was the Gold Room Ceremony. It was October 4th, I believe. I did not show up. Nobody from Truce showed up. Um, press was trying to come and visit with me. But at that point in time, I was really my health. I, I gave all my last bit of energy to that debate the night before. And the next day I was down with a migraine attack. I couldn't even function. I refused to talk to the press. And um, we, we waited for the next month as, as election day rolled near, much like tonight. <laughs> we waited for election night. We had a party. I threw a party at one of the Hilton hotels for all the patients and people who had advocated with us over the years. And we watched as the no numbers rolled in and we hit 53% and we won. We absolutely won Prop 2 passed, but it was a very hollow feeling because we also knew that with that victory meant that a special session was coming in a few weeks and the legislators were going to replace and repeal our ballot initiative that we just passed. You so, know, let's go ahead and, and end it tonight at this place. Yeah. This is a good lead in ending it here. Yeah. Um, because this starts to play into my mental deterioration that starts yeah. to happen. The depression starts to kick my ass right about here. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So that will lead us right into this, the psychedelics and why and, and everything else. And yeah. I'm and sorry it, this is I'm, so long. No. <laughs> Put down the weapons that you use against yourself. You don't need them anymore. Lay down the weapons that you use against the world. We don't need another war. Put down the weapons that you use against yourself. You don't Hi, this is Hillary. Matthew Ryan. Carol Ashley. And I like to play bingo online while listening to Infants on Thrones. You can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. And if you really like what you hear, give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. I did. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? My worst crime is an inside job Dark thoughts taking over like an inside mob I tune into the scene between the eyes And take a breath Thank you for listening to Infants on Front I sit still and watch the thoughts float past me Never mind the future, never mind what the past be I like to jump and let the universe catch me Three, four, watch the beauty blow past me I keep my pockets like destination in sight. Keep my actions elevated to compassionate heights. I'm walking past the fight, laying down on such a night. Choosing love when I pick up this mic. Hey there, listeners. I have a special Easter egg for you today. Now, at one point in today's conversation, Christine said something about belief and God and energy. I don't know if I believe in a God. Yeah. I definitely believe that there is a energy that we all share. When 
Suffering is the human condition, let compassion be the cure. And when there is important work that needs to be done, I definitely believe the universe works in a way that helps those energies come together to create that change. I was registering people who had never voted and they were in their 40s and 50s. Like what this, this particular issue did was awaken people. Now, I basically feel the same way, even if that energy is just us and the way that we interact with other people in the world. Just like Christine has made a huge impact in the way that she's used her energy in this world. I definitely believe that there is a energy that we all share. Now, I recently started another podcast and I wrote a book about it, a fictional memoir of sorts. It's a back and forth dialogue between myself and my imagination exploring questions like these and asking myself, what do I actually really believe? Do I even really believe anything at all? It's called Bathing with God, and I'm starting a new series in Bathing with God called The Tao of Tao, because my first name is Tao, and because I've always wanted to read and discuss the Tao Te Ching, a book of ancient Chinese spiritual wisdom. Now, if that sounds interesting to you, you can go check out the Bathing with God podcast at bathingwithgod.com. The episodes are short and sweet, and here is one of them right now. Because the world is round, it turns me on. Welcome to Bathing with God. The Tao of Tao. The Tao of Tao. Hey, Tao. Hey, what? Do you still want to read the Tao Te Ching with me? I sure do. Great. There are 81 entries in total. Here's the first one. It's called, What is the Tao? Right on. Bring it. The Tao that can be understood is not the eternal cosmic Tao. Just as an idea that can be expressed in words is not the infinite idea. And yet, this ineffable Tao is the source of all spirit and matter expressing itself. It is the mother of all created things. Not to desire material things is to know the freedom of spirituality, and to desire them is to suffer the limitations of matter. Yet these two things, matter and spirit, so different in nature, have the same origin. This unity is the mystery of mysteries and the gateway to spirituality. There you go. That's the first entry in the Tao Te Ching. What do you think? What do I think about what? What do you think about what it said? Mm, I don't know. It, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. Why is the Tao that can be understood not the eternal cosmic Tao? I mean, if you understand it, doesn't that mean that you actually understand it? That you see it for what it actually is? Why is this suggesting that the Tao, aka the way of reality, cannot be understood? First of all, I'm very glad that you picked up on the reality thread. One of the single best modern English translations of the word Tao is reality. Yes, Tao literally means the way. 
But what that essentially means is the way of nature, or the multidimensional interwoven systems and networks of nature that bring about this perceived human experience of existence. You know, reality. And second, just as that previous little word game of mine demonstrated, words are incredibly clumsy ways that we attempt to create a symbol to describe what is only available to us through our limited senses. In other words, your human bodies evolved to sense a very narrow and specific spectrum of sight, sound, smell, touch, etc. Most of reality is simply invisible and inaccessible to you. How could you possibly ever really know the true nature of reality if your nervous systems have not evolved to perceive anything more than a small fraction of it? This question was even more relevant 2600 years ago when tools and methods for perceiving reality were nowhere near as advanced as they are today. But don't let your modern technology fool you. The number of things in existence that you are completely ignorant of far outnumber your few significantly insignificant scientific discoveries into the nature of reality. Thus, any reality that is understood to be reality is not the real, actual, cosmic, eternal reality. That true reality cannot be perceived or understood by the human mind. Uh, I don't know. I, I still don't like it. Why does it say this ineffable Tao is the source of all spirit and matter expressing itself? It is the mother of all created things. Ineffable simply means that it is beyond description. So it is basically saying, once again, that true reality cannot be adequately understood or expressed. Nevertheless, it is the creator of all things. But why can't it be understood? That's, it's such an intellectual cop-out. I hate that. Hang on a second. Do you understand what you are saying? How old is the human mind compared to the entire universe? How many other universes are there besides this one? How much exists outside the umwelt of human perception? You do realize that the energy that evolved into you has been evolving into other things long before you, right? You do recognize that the energy that evolved into you will continue evolving into other things long after your species has become extinct, don't you? Please, do not insult the intelligence of this energy by projecting your own ignorance onto it. Whether or not you understand what it is, is irrelevant to the fact that it understands you perfectly. The way of the Tao is the way of nature, and nature will keep doing what nature does in and of itself, thank you very much. Fine, but why does it say that we shouldn't desire material things if we want spiritual freedom? That sounds like the kind of thing that makes so-called spiritual people look down on so-called non-spiritual people who seek after material things. And I don't like that whole us versus them thing. I'm glad that you don't like that whole us versus them thing. I don't like it either. But what does this entry really say? It says that these two things, matter and spirit, so different in nature, both spring from the same source. So you see, no matter how you interpret differences between matter and spirit, physical reality and quantum energy potential, there is no us versus them. 
all things are one. So anyone who is so-called putting themselves above others is simply doubling down on the illusion of separateness. Okay, but then what is the gateway to spirituality? How does this help us? Unity. That is the gateway to spirituality. The truth that all mysterious workings of nature are one. One giant interconnected system. One giant sea of ineffable energy that is doing everything in existence, everywhere, all the time. Yeah, but how is that the gateway to spirituality? I see. Well, instead of me telling you that, why not find out for yourself? Do a little experiment today. Every time you look at someone or something else around you today, remind yourself that you are that thing and it is you. You are one wave looking at another wave, all part of the same ocean. Marvel at it. Wonder about it. Awe over it. Respect the reality of it. Try it out and see how it feels. Then come back and tell me if that feels like spirituality to you. Thank you for listening to Bathing with God. If you like what you just heard and would like to purchase a print or Kindle version of the complete book, search for it on Amazon.com or go to the website bathingwithgod.com. And if you really, really like what you just heard, share it with someone you love and give me a five-star rating on iTunes or whatever podcasting platform you use. You can also like our Facebook page and subscribe to the Bathing with God YouTube channel. And if you'd like to reach out to me personally, you can email me, Glenn Osland, at bathingwithgod at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And probably so would Quad. Oh yeah, bring it. Thanks again for listening to Bathing, Bathing with, with God. God.